Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. This is your host, Laura Camacho. This is episode 214, and I have an amazing, amazing, amazing guest. I told you that I'm kind of like a bouncer, that I have to say no to a lot of people who want to talk to you on this outlet, and I don't let them. But Carlo Pignataro is a luxury coach. He's Italian, but working in Dubai. And usually I record the introduction to the podcast before the introduction. But today I am recording this after we just finished our conversation. I found Carlo Pignataro's book, which is called Sell with Style, The Ultimate Guide to Luxury Selling. As those of you who've been with me around for a while will know that I have been fascinated with luxury brands. Not that I buy them necessarily. I might, if I do, I'd probably buy them vintage, but it's just fascinating to me how they can charge such a premium and get away with it. I mean, that's really quite something. And Carla really delivered uh, the goods with this interview. He let us know that it's all in the details, but also the vision. There's some things that you can do to improve the experience of yourself, say from one day to the another. But, you know, overall building a career, building anything of value is something that takes time. Carlo is an author. So he's author of, I think he's got another book, I'm going to link that in the show notes. He's a consultant and training specialist known as the luxury coach. He was born in Turin, Italy, and now he works between Dubai and Dublin. He has worked with all the top brands, but he started off in non-luxury. So he doesn't come from a blue chip silver spoon family. He's had top leadership roles in Gucci, Damiani, TJF Group, and Altair, which those may not even be household recognizable names to you, but those are the companies that own the top luxury brands. That's where he comes from, you know, and learning that he says that they those top brands, just like American Express, just like Google, in the non-luxury brand, top company brands attract top talent. But the trick is to keep that talent. And so he does go into culture and how important culture is as well. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. I would ask you to please leave a five-star review and just a, two words like great job, even though that's very generic. It would be very helpful to me if you would take the time to do that and and share this with your friends. This is an unusual episode. This guy is not, you know, doing the rounds of podcasts. I found him and nailed him down and had to put a lot of things into place in order to bring him to you. So I am just super pumped about that. Let me remind you that it's close to Christmas shopping time, Hanukkah shopping, the practical guide to effective communication, get recognized for the value you already contribute, would be a great Christmas gift for anybody about to graduate from college that you know needs some help with their communication skills because it's not boring. There's a lot of stories in it. It's a lot of skills that people don't normally talk about. And so I highly recommend the practical guide to effective communication, which is our sponsor. So without further ado, let's talk to Carla. So today, as I mentioned, uh, we have Carlo Pina 
Taro, Pina Taro. He is Italian, but he is located in Dubai and he has this very impressive background in luxury brands. And he is going to talk to us about how a person or even a small company can use some of the branding tricks, communication approaches to increase our own value and, and the value of what we do, which just sounds impossible, right? But I've always been fascinated by the fact that a company like Hermes can charge, I don't know, $800 for a silk scarf that you can buy for, say, $100 or a $10,000 pool table, like a $10,000 or $50,000. I don't even know the price. It's just crazy amounts. And of course, you know, you say, well, Laura, rich people need something to buy. But also people that are not rich, you know, we all want to buy those luxury brands. And so what is it about them? And it's something that I've read about. And now I'm so excited. I get to talk to one of the world's leading experts in precisely this quality. He has a book that I bought called Sell with Style. That's how I found him, actually. I don't know how I found the book. You know how the internet is. But I found his book and I'm like, I have to talk. To Carlo because Carlo is going to lay it on us and I'm super excited. So all that to say, welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. Tell us about your journey. How did you get involved in luxury to begin with? Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. My journey in luxury. See, I don't think my journey has anything special. It's like everybody's journey. But there are a couple of things that uh, may be of interest uh, of, uh, of your audience. Uh, I happen to work with some of the most prestigious companies and brands in the world. I started with a company called Damiani. Damiani is the second largest Italian jeweler. And then uh, I moved to Dubai for the first time where I joined the Altair Group. Uh, at the time was the largest and most prestigious, again, uh, franchisee of uh, luxury brands uh, from mainly from Europe. So Altair was the franchisee for Bulgari, for Gucci, for Armani, and many, many others. And I managed the uh, jewelry division for them across the region. And then I moved back to Italy to join Gucci, do some international business expansion for them until I started doing consultancy. And this is where I think my story, a small story, could be of interest of your audience. Uh, and particularly two things. The first one is how I entered this industry. See, I come from uh, a middle class, loving, loving, loving middle class family. So I didn't have really access to the world of hyper luxury that I have experienced uh, over the course of my career when I started. And I remember that at the time, and we're talking about 2001, I was working for a completely different industry, home appliances that had very little to do <laughs> <laughs> with luxury. And it was great for me because I was a young man. I would travel the world, three continents. It was exciting until the excitement started fading away. And I felt that something was missing and I didn't know what. I have a good job. I have a good salary. I happen to travel the world. I, I have several experiences, new experiences. So what's missing? And I realized that I wasn't really connecting with the product or even better, what was behind the product, the idea, the necessity, the desire, it wasn't there. And so that's where I, I had a, some sort of an intuition. I said, why not trying luxury, the luxury industry with zero connections? I promise, zero connections. And so I started sending emails and I want to remind you it was 2001. So right. it's yeah. not like you were communicating online every day. We were still sending across continents. So I started sending emails with my resume attached. So to some of the most 
uh, you know, bold companies in my country, and many of them are there, you know, the big names, I started right. sending my resume saying, look, I'm in into, in, into an international business development uh, role. I'd love to join your company. And Damiani answered. Oh. I had to do, I don't know how many interviews uh-huh. <laughs> because probably it took them time to be convinced yes. about hiring yes. somebody from a different industry. But I remember very vividly going from, I don't know, selling appliances in Indonesia rather than uh, China to being in Paris, in Place Vendôme, uh, looking after the boutique. So that's the first step that I think could be of interest because this is where I went from vision, pure vision, with no connections, no hints, no nothing, to creating a reality that has then developed over the course of my life and my career. The second step is when I decided uh, I would focus my efforts and my business uh, in the educational part, uh, in writing books, creating content, uh, and designing uh, educational programs for corporates in the luxury industry, and not only, which is the core of my business today. After completing my journey with uh, multinational companies, uh, so the last one was uh, was Gucci, I joined uh, a couple of great leaders in our industry, Paolo Novembri, at the time former president and CEO of Damiani in the USA, New York, and Paola De Luca, who's the world's leading trends forecaster for the jewelry industry. Wow. So I joined them in this beautiful uh, new venture called TJF, uh, a consultancy firm that would consult, uh, again, some of the greatest luxury companies in the world on different topics from strategy to distribution to creativity, trends, and so forth. And, you know, as a consultant, uh, you happen to spend one day with a company and the next day with another company. And you see the difference between all those companies, the difference in culture, the difference in product, the difference in uh, strategy, the many differences. And that's where I realized, and we are talking about 2010, that what really made a difference, especially in, the, in this moment in time, that moment in time, and it hasn't changed as of today, is the quality of the people who work within a company. Wow. I want to comment, you can continue what you were going to say on that, but I want to comment that I think one of the things that has made you especially valuable to the luxury industry is the fact that you came from appliances. I truly believe that when we switch industries, that we bring this fresh perspective. We're not trained in how it's supposed to be. We have expertise in the other area. And then we see, we come into a new business or a new industry, and we just see it with fresh eyes. Like I'm sure your business development of appliances in Indonesia, somehow you picked up a perspective that enabled you to see things that other people don't see. Just like for me as a very introverted communication coach, if you were to ask a naturally charismatic person, you know, say, how how is it that you are able to connect with people. And because that ability is so natural to them, they would say, oh, I just talk to people. Duh, that's like the easiest thing in the world. But for somebody who has doesn't see that as easy, doesn't see that as natural, then you notice things that other people don't notice. Would you agree? Absolutely. See, in my case, I certainly came with fresh eyes. I don't know how competent uh, they were fresh. <laughs> right. What I know and what I remember is that I was still full of wonder and full of curiosity. And uh, when you have this uh, curiosity and wonder and excitement that triggers you, you go to work in the morning ready for anything. And this has helped me. Right, I'm sure. 
And I imagine, I've never worked in luxury, that the digitalization of everything and the commodization of everything must feel like a pretty serious threat to the whole idea of luxury. Is that, or am I completely wrong? I don't know. I think digitalization is a great opportunity for luxury. Okay. Why would it threaten it? See, the basics haven't changed. The medium has changed. The tools we use to connect are changed. Maybe we as human beings will change over time because of artificial intelligence and how it can help us evolve into something different, a different type of animal. But it will take centuries for this to happen. But as of now, the very essence of desire, the very essence of beauty, the very essence of exclusivity, the very essence of sense of belonging, the very essence of magic, of uh, mystery haven't changed. And that's what people are attracted. And to answer your question, Laura, it's not hard for a luxury company to attract a talent because everybody wants to work for a big brand. Everybody wants to work for a prestigious company. It would add prestige to their own persona. But the hard part is to retain talent. And this is only a matter of culture. It's only culture that makes people want to stay in a company. I love that. Yes. Well, that's true of any industry. Could you, you don't have to name names, but could you give us an example of what a strong culture and well, I'll, I'll name a name because I coached somebody from Tiffany's and company. And this woman had worked in Tiffany her entire life, like 20 some years. Her mother had worked at Tiffany in sales and her brother had worked. I mean, to me, that was like, mind-blowing that somebody would work at a company like it was a generational thing what are the qualities though of that culture that are attractive to retain top talent those qualities i believe are the same across industries fairness meritocracy transparency commitment respect understanding of the human side of employees a clear vision a business that uh, is grounded and founded on clear values. This is what makes people want to stay within a company. Uh, right, so it's, it's nothing fancy. It's not like having a signature scent in the office. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that because uh, I was once in Paris and somebody was showing me one of the fancy hotels and she said they had their signature scent in the candles in the hotel. <laughs> and I, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> That's a lovely customer experience, but that doesn't necessarily reflect into an amazing employee experience. I actually think, uh, but I may be alone in thinking that, but I do think that a too fancy workplace uh, doesn't really help. What I mean is, uh, and not necessarily the luxury industry, I've seen other industries spoiling their employees even more. A workplace should be a place where we reason together when we try things together, when we collaborate, when we make efforts, not when we play uh, ping, ping pong. pong. Right, right. I agree. Plus, if you don't like ping pong, to me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do all day? <laughs> what do you do? Exactly. Keep score. You may give a different name to it, but being fair and feeling like your work matters, right? That I think that is something that we all crave, even if we say we are interested in the salary, but it's really something deeper. Um, tell me at the individual level, how did you find a connection, even to write your book, Sell with Style, between 
the luxury industry and say somebody, let's say a young Carlo who's selling appliances in Indonesia in 2023, how did you see the connection that you had something to offer this audience? The people listening to this, hello, everybody, they're working at the top tech companies, the top banks, credit card companies, and there's some business owners. I don't think there's a single person except maybe somebody from Tiffany's who's working in the luxury industry. Where's the connection with the rest of the workforce? Uh, See, Laura, I think that uh, now, as we speak today, more than ever before in industry, there's an interconnection between industries and lifestyle, more than ever before. Uh, And uh, more and more people have access to their basic needs met. Yes, Uh, certainly in the United States. All all over the world. Uh, I mean, when we read the newspaper in the morning, we may be depressed from what we read, uh, but uh, poverty rates have decreased by 90%, over 90% over the past 40 years. So this means something. So we have more wealth distributed, not equally, but more wealth being distributed all over the world. So more people now have access to the small things that make their life better, more comfortable, hopefully more meaningful. So this makes uh, every industry wanting or needing to luxurize uh, their offer a little bit more, not to risk being commoditized. So that's why I try to spread my message as much as possible. And I've been involved in uh, educational projects with different industries, not only the luxury industry, although the luxury industry is my industry of reference, but I've worked for banks, I've worked for trade associations, I've worked for uh, automotive, the automotive industry, for the finance industry and so forth. So the very idea is one of the secrets of luxury, which is not really a secret, is that I, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. So how do we know that uh, we are valuable? When somebody tells us. Mm-hmm. How does Hermès know that it's valuable to its customers when uh, its customers or even better clients are willing to pay a premium to get access? Right, right. right? So by taking this position or this standpoint, uh, we can try and communicate in a way that reflects the very idea of beauty of the people we talk to. Mm -hmm. Another element that we could keep into consideration when trying and luxurize or uplifting our perceived value is in knowing that scarcity has always created desire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you are there every time, every day, the minute a friend calls, you'll be less mysterious, less interesting, less... uh, (laughs) This man isn't it? Oh my gosh! Yes. Okay. So there's scarcity and there's beauty, and I yeah I do think that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But also there are certain things that we all think are beautiful. So there is some universality there, don't you think? Yes, there's a universal attempt to achieve beauty, isn't it? So we all know that we all aim to have some sort of beauty in our lives. Now, what you consider beautiful may be different from what I consider beautiful. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the more different the cultures, the more diverse the the perception of beauty. But this doesn't mean that we cannot try and look at things uh, from the perspective of our customer customer or counterpart. Let me give you an example. What many industries do, and that's where they fail to luxurize their offer or the way they are perceived, is in giving the market what they are able to make, do, or produce. Mm -hmm. 
This is how I do it. This is how I can make it. This is how I can manufacture it. Take it or leave it. Other smarter industries may say, this is how you would like it. Let me try and see if I can personalize it further to make it more palatable for you or even better, more desirable for you. So how do you do that? Oh, there are so many ways. By adding layers of personalization, sometimes uh, in terms of uh, product features, other times in terms of communication, other times again in terms of customer experience. Uh, there is a beautiful book by Joseph Pine, uh, who wrote uh, 20 plus years ago, the very advanced for the time book, uh, very forward thinking book, uh, The Experience Economy. Oh, I have that book. That is an incredible book. Yes, you're right. Incredible. And yes. it was written in 1998, where very few people would speak about experience. Right, 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 right. Uh, but he also wrote a new one, uh, Mass Customization. Okay. Where basically his contention is, uh, even in mass markets, uh, uh, we should try and add a layer of personalization because everyone, with no exception, wants to feel special acknowledge, recognize, heard, put it as you like. Right. So it seems like AI would be like a tool for that, right? Absolutely. But how does somebody, like an engineer at Google, a senior engineer at Google, how can, how can that person, let's just take that person, how can that person create a better experience? How can he personalize their interactions? What does that mean on the individual level? Well, there's an ingredient uh, that has never, ever, not in my entire life and uh, in the experience of thousands of people that I've had a chance to train or speak to or have as readers of my books. And this is listening in a very particular way, what I call active listening, which is listening in a way that makes the other person feel profoundly understood. Wow. Okay. And this is so scarce. No, mm -hmm. speaking again of scarcity, this is so scarce because we live in a time where everybody's looking for their 15 minutes of fame. We come with the assumption that the spotlight should be on us and social media favors this right. idea. Absolutely, no? absolutely. But when you're willing, genuinely and profoundly to share the spotlight and point it towards the other person, magic happens. So if you know how to make the other person feel understood, feel, not necessarily be, because we don't know if we really understand them, but if we give them the impression that we are there physically, mentally, spiritually, and they feel understood, acknowledged, heard, uh, magic happens. I know from experience and mine and other people's that you can be a good listener and capture what people are saying and even their intent, but that is not the same as what you're saying, which is that they feel that you heard them, that you understood them and that you value them, right? You have to listen, of course, but then how do you make, how do you close that loop and that letting the person know that you, by repeating back what they said? You can also choose to repeat back what they said. This is a good technique, um, but it's a, the level of intensity and attention that you bring to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How you look at them, how you focus on what they say. It's a physical, I would, they're saying is an energetic thing. Is your energy that embraces them. 
it takes time and exercise because it doesn't come natural. Right. You really have to focus on this. You look at this person who's in front of you and then you keep asking yourself, am I really listening to this person? Am I really giving her the impression that she's being understood? And you measure the the results uh, until you perfect you perfect uh, right. the technique. I think speak. I think yeah, what you're saying resonates so much about this active listening because when people come to me for help, they want help in speaking because they're not saying enough because they're afraid that what they have to say is not important. Just to give one of the or that somebody else is going to take credit for it, what they're saying. And so they're focused on themselves more than the person that they're talking to. And so what I'm taking away is that the most difficult situation for a lot of my clients is when they're talking to somebody much higher up. And if they focus instead of trying to be impressive, but they focus rather on making the other person heard, even if it's the CEO of your company, the much higher rank than you, that you're going to be ahead of the game. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And if I may contribute further to the perception of this uh, engineer at Google Mm -hmm, or the mm -hmm. perceived value of this engineer at Google, Mm -hmm. I would also say be super kind and polite. Kindness, politeness uh, is something we don't see anymore. Be super polite. Use a language that you will never regret. It sounds like it would be second nature that we would all, we wouldn't need to hear that. But in business, it's especially in in these more tech companies, like chop, 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 you know, let's get down to business. Hurry up. Is it ready yet? Yeah. I mean, you can still go down to business, but you can be super kind in doing this. Mm -hmm. And you can Mm -hmm. use nice words. See, words uh, portray worlds. Now, my (laughs) Italian accent doesn't help me. (laughs) But let me try and slow it down and repeat it. Words create worlds. So if I say that something is nice, it's just nice. But if I say that it's beautiful, it's already beautiful. But if I say that it's wonderful, then if I say that it's beyond imagination, then I'm creating layers of uh, beauty, magnificence, call it as you like. So if you're super kind, super polite, uh, and you always deal with people in this way, uh, you will increase your perceived value. And then why not? Dress well. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm not necessarily saying in a suit and tie. This is not necessary. Every industry has has its own style. I understand it. I respect it. But choose clothes uh, that reflect a little bit of self-respect and care. What does that look like at the informal level? Everything you choose, shoot for quality. Have it always clean and neat. Your hands, uh, your nails polished. Why not? Your Mm -hmm. shoes clean. It makes a huge difference on a daily basis. I love that. I remember so clearly this guy (laughs) asking me to help him with executive presence. And he's wearing this dirty ripped T-shirt. And he hasn't shaved in a couple days. (laughs) I'm like, oh, so what do you understand by executive presence? (laughs) What is your take on how to make a message into a story? I do have an approach for that. Uh, I always try to keep in mind that uh, uh, stories uh, sell because uh, story make people understand a concept. Concept could be as abstract or vague until 
we shape it into a story that somebody can relate to and understand. So stories simplify concepts, connect dots. Now, for stories to be powerful based on my research and my experience, I would say that they should be full of visual, auditory, and kinesthetic details, just because okay. we don't know if a person is slightly more visual, more auditory, or more kinesthetic. They should involve people as much as possible because uh, people connect to people. Those stories should portray a journey, something that goes from a point A to a point B to a point C, a struggle, a defeat, a victory. And stories should be relevant. Uh, I do a lot of training for the luxury industry and I do train management, but also the sales force and so forth. And there is a lot of storytelling going on in the luxury industry because, as you may imagine, every brand is very careful in having its unique story being mm -hmm. told in the mm -hmm. most uh, precise and understandable way. But unfortunately, a brand history is not something that we can force feed our customers with. Right. We have to start from a point that is relevant to the very conversation that we are having that sometimes is just an anecdote. Right. Sometimes it's just what happened yesterday and we need to connect what happened yesterday to the entire history of the brand. And this is the difficult part uh, for less experienced people. But once you learn how to do that, uh, then you can take that part of the story that is relevant to the moment in time and create a magical experience uh, for, for the customer or the stakeholder. Yes. And I think even if you're, you know, working in a data center or something that is not directly customer facing, but way downstream, you can still take whatever work you're doing. It does affect people. How does it affect them? What is How does it make them feel? What is, how does it improve their life or make their life more easy? That's the story, right? I have a quote from your book that I just love. So I want you to tell me how you came to this quote. So everybody listen up closely. It's just one sentence. This is what Carlos says. If you want to give something your best shot, you must be braver, more courage. I mean, that more courage is Laura. If you want to give something your best shot, you must be braver. Why do we need courage? This is a sentence that encompasses many things and many experiences that I had uh, in my life. And I would say that uh, uh, the more you are invested into something, and when you want to succeed at something, you are invested. You are invested And you have also invested time and you may have invested resources. So the more invested you are, the more you have to lose. And that's where you need the courage to still go and try. Because it's a risk. It's a risk of doing something different. Is that right? It's the risk of, of failing at something that you really care about. Okay. That's a hard risk. You're right. And it's hard. Let me give you an example or a story, if you will. Since yes, we're talking about I would love a story. I remember having a conversation the other day with uh, a person who works with a stellar brand. Let me put it this way. In Dubai, which is a stellar city when right. it comes to luxury. And this person was with a very very important customer, somebody who spends a significant amount of money and who buys always the most expensive, most unique pieces. And this person told me how every time is a stressful event because of the level of investment they have in this customer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This customer buys, then 
you know, it's a good day. It's a good payday. Right. If the customer right. doesn't right. buy, it's not as good as it should. So right. to cut a long story short, and, uh, and he told me that uh, over the course of uh, the past three, four months, uh, she wasn't able to finalize as many sales as she was used to in the past. And we were having this. It's a private coaching that I was doing with this person. And we came to the conclusion that uh, the more she was invested with this customer, the less brave she would be in her conversation with him. Before, when she really didn't know the economic power of this customer, she would be more brave. She would challenge him. She would show him pieces and stuff that she wasn't sure he would like. She would be more relaxed uh, and uh, she would use humor in the conversation and she would be braver in what she would say. But once she learned how potential the customer was, she lost that mojo. That's why we need to be brave. Also, don't forget, Laura, a luxury positioning is built upon no after no after no after no. You don't become, you don't create anything perceived as luxury if you take every opportunity that comes your way. Uh, Right? Right. It's hard to say no to a sale, for example, when you need it. Right. And you would be willing to give a discount or you would be willing to devalue the positioning of your offer, of your item, of your brand, of your service. But that's where you have to hold on and be true to the positioning that you have chosen. Which uh, is somehow re- also relates to your values and your story, right? Absolutely. See, in this industry, not for every company, but for many companies, It's not only about who's your target audience. It's also who you don't want to talk to, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't buy from you is as important as uh, who buys from you. Oh, my gosh. I'm not saying this to discriminate anybody. But I'm talking about a level of appreciation or sophistication or understanding what you do. Right. There's a saying. Be where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. Yes, but this could apply to other industries. This could apply to Mm -hmm. other areas of life. I'm thinking of musicians, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you are a sophisticated musician who has a music filled with harmony and rhythm and melody and complex structure, you don't want the same audience as the latest trap or, uh, you know. yes, that's a great example. You need 10,000 screaming people. You Mm -hmm. need attention. You need... So who, who you sell to is important, but who you don't sell to or right. you're not, who you're talking to is almost as important. You're absolutely right. And that's a source of when we get upset or feel like we've failed because X person doesn't like us or like our work. Well, then that person is probably better not in your orbit, not in your solar system. And there's plenty of other people out there. So one of the, according to the book, one of the most important components of a luxury brand is to be 10 times better than the competition. So how does that work? How can you know that you are? I mean, that to me, it sounds like nice. It reminds me of Grant Cardone. I don't, you know, (laughs) but, uh, but how do you do that? And and I actually quoted him in the book because I liked the 10x thing. Yes. And now, 10, 10x is just a number. 
10 mm. times is just a number. But see, the one thing that really struck me when I started my career in this industry, I heard a word that I had never heard before in a business context. In the luxury industry, at the creative level in particular, um, a lot of people talk about perfection. Oh, yeah. Okay. As we know, perfection is not human. Right. So nobody's perfect. No brand is perfect. No item is perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the attempt to reach perfection is what makes a difference. And since perfection, as we said before, is not human, is not probably achievable. Right. But improvement is. So if I know that tomorrow I'm going to work towards perception, per per perfection, my apologies, <laughs> perfection, even harder than today, this is where I see giant leaps in my improvement. And because we know that people are willing to pay a premium for what we do, for the mm -hmm. jewels we design and make, for the clothes, for the accessories, for mm -hmm. the cars, for the hotel rooms, whatever is it. Mm -hmm. So we need to be very attentive and very careful in taking care of all the small details so that they can have an overall wonderful experience. They say I the love devil that. detail, isn't it? Yes. You know, we're preaching to the choir, but it's a good reminder, rather. Uh, yes, you're not going to get perfect, but if you keep going for those small or large improvements in the way you present yourself and the way you talk to people, plus in the quality of your actual work. So uh, speaking of quality, this is something that I was caught completely by surprise in your book, how you mentioned voice quality. And by the way, let, before you answer, I'm going I'm to talk about voice quality. I want everybody to know that Carlo was very particular. He has a great microphone, a great setup, and that he was beyond any guests of the 200 people that have been on this podcast, more concerned about the quality of the recording. But we have a magical editor named Stanley who makes everything sound good these days. But how do you coach people with voice quality? Voice is a communication tool, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I am a trained musician and a trained opera singer. Oh my gosh, I did not remember that. <laughs> okay. I couldn't forget that in my career as a businessman. Right. I, I Actually, I can tell you, especially when I started my own business, and it, it wasn't easy for me because I came from the big brands, but I, at the very beginning of my career, I, I needed to start doing uh, cold calls. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... I don't work in a space where cold calls are welcome. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I wouldn't do them in my own uh, native language. And I can tell you that the grain of my voice, the quality of my voice, or if you will, the love of my voice, not for how it sounds, but how I have nurtured it over the years, uh, has helped me come across uh, as the person who may solve their problems and be a good business partner. But besides that, I do believe that the voice, uh, the quality of a voice can really help communicate uh, in a more profound and uh, impactful way. I love that. It's very true. It's just something that we don't think about. It's just one of those details. But if somebody out there, I mean, I'm sure there are several people that are all of a sudden conscious of their voice. And by the way, a lot of people listening to this are also speaking English as a second or third language and sometimes feel that 
their accent or their lack of vocabulary is a deterrent, which I don't think it is. I think the accents are very charming as long as you're clear. But voice quality is something that we could all improve. So is there any um, tip that we could use to improve our voice quality besides hiring a singing coach or something? I don't know. A vocal coach. Well, you just said it, uh, Laura. Clarity, I think, is the most important thing. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Regardless of one's accent or vocabulary, but being clear and understood is very important. Mm -hmm. Correct. And then be a little bit musical and rhythmical in the way you speak. Change notes from time to time. Change rhythm. Make pauses. Add a little bit of excitement and uh, speed when need be, but slow down, repeat, repeat, repeat uh, when need be again. So I think those variations, uh, and it takes a little bit of practice, it's not rocket science, uh, but those variations uh, and uh, trying to be as clear as possible are already great starting point. And then, of course, one can do more. I always think that uh, a deep voice uh, helps uh, portraying charisma. Right. It's true that a deeper voice or lower tone does communicate more confidence. And yet when we get nervous, our voices tend to go up, at least for women. I get, I don't know if that's true for men also. Yes, it does. There's one more question I have before I let you go. So listen up, folks. He mentions how it's better to avoid using the word no. And I get that instead of saying what you can't do, tell them what you can do. But there are people listening to this who get into trouble from not saying no, because then they take on too much work. So what's the answer? How can you not say no and yet not take on more than you can handle? Uh, Laura, do you know what's my favorite word in English? No. Oh, (laughs) I would love to know your favorite word in English. (laughs) My favorite word is fine. Fine as fine wines, fine art. Mm -hmm. So I just think that if we learn how to rephrase a sentence where we have to deny something, Mm -hmm. and we just make a little effort and try to change the angle. And uh, are you available tomorrow? No. Mm -hmm. But rather say... Uh, I'm available on uh, Sunday and Monday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you call me back tomorrow? I can call you back later today if you like, or next week. You know, it's just a matter of rephrasing it. Uh, it provides a finer experience, a finer conversation, because no creates, a, a no is a barrier. Yeah, and it, it lowers the energy instantly. And if I don't need a barrier, why would I build a barrier? Let's say that you could do something, but you don't want to. Somebody's asking you to do something that you could do and you don't want to. What's the way out of that? Okay, but let's not confuse form with content. So the form is to try and avoid to say the word no, but you're Mm -hmm. still denying your time. You're still denying the thing that they're asking for. Mm -hmm. Okay. I wish I could. Mm -hmm. I wish I could. However, I'm busy. However, I've got something else to do. However, I have another commitment. I wish I could. It's not always about offering a different option. It's just about rephrasing, avoiding to use this word that comes as a slap in your face. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would love to. Unfortunately, I'm not available. Yes. 
Thank you. That is so helpful. All of these things are just little details, but the ripple effect is just tremendous. So um, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you think our audience of extremely good looking, highly conscientious, high performers all over the world, mostly in the United States, though, but these are people that are always looking to get better and to do more. So I'll let you have the last message. A message that I could send to a more US-centric audience, uh, and maybe because it's my European heritage, and this is something that I've learned in my industry, is patience. You don't build Cartier in two years. It takes 200 years to build Cartier. I know it's hard, and I know that we live in a world where instant gratification is the name of the game, where we want to succeed yesterday. However, what I've learned in this industry is that you need to put a lot of efforts, be very present in the moment, do everything that you can possibly do, and then wait for the seed to become something larger. And this is a beautiful lesson I've learned from the luxury industry because I've seen that the most beautiful creations require a lot of time and patience to be designed, conceived, and then manufactured. And uh, the best relationships with uh, customers are built uh, over the course of uh, sometimes decades. And so how to put together this uh, extreme willingness to succeed with also the willingness to wait, this is the challenge. But it's worth waiting. Yes, there's some patience (laughs) needed, I think. And I think the patience comes from accepting and fully accepting that things take time. And I've certainly seen that in my own business, that things happen today, thanks to work I did years ago. And at the time I was just, "Ah, why am I not seeing the results? But it takes time to build a reputation. It takes time for people to find out about you. Even if you're doing, when you're, when you feel like you're doing extremely good work and people aren't, either seeing it or noticing it or even knowing that you're there. It just takes time, doesn't it? It does. Thank you so much, Carlo. This has been an amazing, amazing conversation to our audience. I hope you, this is one I think you should listen to twice. I brought you one of the leading experts in the world on luxury branding. You might want to check out his book. I'm going to link everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Thank that. you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate it.